The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Thanks, thanks a lot, Michelle. And uh, let me let me first, uh, before I get started uh, introducing or harassing uh, Marcus here, I wanted to um, acknowledge the, the the there's three team leads on this uh, KISS study, and uh, the KISS study is this uh, Keck Institute for Space Sciences. And studies. Thank you. I thought it was, I, was, I was looking at you to get it right. I was like, I know. Was it Cavley? No, no, no. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We've had some issues with the name. Um, so uh, uh, maybe maybe both Barris and uh, Jeff Shapiro can uh, stand up and, uh, and and show everybody. So Barris. Jeff is, is from MIT and is an expert in all things quantum, comp, uh, quantum communication, and Barris is at JPL. And um, I can tell you that uh, this meeting just would not happen without Barris. He would, he's been the, the engine uh, behind it, at least, at least from, from my perspective, uh, perspective there. So let's thank, let's thank Barris for all this. So Marcus, okay. So Marcus and I have been working together for a number of years, and it's, it's always uh, hugely fun. Um, the, uh, you're going to find out that this Austrian accent that he has uh, will convince you that anything is possible and that you're willing to go for something with extreme enthusiasm just, just by the, the, the language. Uh, Marcus uh, is, uh, is Bavarian, and um, he got his Ph.D. in 2002 in, uh, in Munich. And uh, if you look at his CV and if you actually sit down and have beers with Marcus, you're going to find out that his early studies were a combination of physics and philosophy. So there's, um, and that philosophical, uh, you know, education is not just for at-home reading or vacations. It actually comes deeply into the physics and the physics approach that Marcus has here uh, in, his, in, his, in his work. Um, in 2003 through 2006, if I got the dates right, he worked uh, in, with Anton Zeilinger's group. Uh, and it was on uh, the quantum cryptography, quantum information, all these sorts, these sorts of things. Uh, in 2006, you transitioned to a senior scientist at the Institute uh, for uh, Quantum Optics and Quantum Information, again in Vienna. And then in 2009, uh, Marcus started his own group as a, a professor of physics at Vienna and has an extremely active group, uh, group there. Um, he's awarded a number of prizes. In 2007, he was awarded the uh, Fresnel Prize from the uh, Europhysics Society. In 2007, the... Uh, um, Oh, my handwriting is bad. The Leibniz? Leibniz? Leibniz. Leibniz Prize from the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Uh, 2008, the, the, the Cole Ravage Prize. Is that right? Cole Rush Prize, yeah. So that one, yeah. Uh, and then in 2010, the, the uh, Bessel Research Award um, from the Humboldt Foundation. So like I said, Marcus is an expert in all things uh, quantum information, quantum cryptography, foundations of quantum physics, and the way that we interact mostly is on uh, looking at mechanical systems and trying to get them down to quantum limits. And Marcus now has uh, uh, collaborations not only with my group, but also with uh, Oscar Painter's group on campus, and so his kind of footprint is, 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 uh, is growing and is everywhere. So anyway, let's, um, let's take a, uh, a, a moment to welcome Marcus and uh, really look forward to watching. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for this uh, flattering introduction. Uh, the only correction, the accent, of course, is Bavarian, oh, yeah. <laughs> as you will recognize in a second. Right? <laughs> uh, 
Um, I also would like to thank very much the um, organizers so, um, to, for, for, for having me for um, actually organizing this beautiful uh, workshop here at the Keck Institute and um, yeah, got it. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so um, what this talk is going to be about is, um, well, it's, it's somehow related to the title, but what I... Um, what I what I wanted to <laughs> what I wanted to um, tell you is um, actually I want to want to give you a few um, examples how questions on the very foundations of quantum physics have been turned into experiments or actually are right now being turned into experiments and um, that putting such experiments in a space environment, or at least thinking about putting such, such, such experiments in a space environment, um, can really give you access to a completely new parameter regimes. And um, therefore, um, potentially, hopefully, this is actually what we are discussing right now the, the last few days, um, uh, 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 access to um, beautiful new experiments in new physics. So the examples that I chose, is, um, for, that, that I chose follow um, three simple questions about quantum physics. Um, the first simple question is why the quantum? So what does the wave function mean? Um, we actually go from EPR to quantum, uh, up to quantum cryptography. The second one, why the classical? So why do we actually have a classical world? What is the relation between the quantum world and the classical world? And finally, what is the connection between quantum physics and gravity? You see, these are three very simple questions. Um, and I will show you now that uh, thinking about those can actually lead to some um, beautiful insights. So let's start with the first one. Since this is a, a very mixed audience, I apologize to the trained quantum physicist. I would like to start introducing a couple of fundamental concepts of quantum physics. And the two basic ones that I would like to introduce you to um, are... Uh, based on two challenges, conceptual challenges that quantum physics poses to us. The first one is um, the one of randomness. So suppose we um, have somewhere um, the ability to create single photons. I push a knob, a single photon, so a single particle of light is created, falls on this, um, this beam splitter, and normally this such a beam splitter is just a half-silvered mirror, so when light shines on such a beam splitter, half of the intensity of, the, of, of my laser beam is reflected, here into B, the other one is transmitted. If a single photon hits such a beam splitter, um, then you may ask what's happening. It's a single particle, so I can tell you the particle doesn't get split, so it, it, it stays one particle, and what's going to happen is that you will have a click in one of those two um, uh, um, output ports, let's say in the upper one here, with 50% probability. And if you look at the lower one, you will also get a click with 50% probability. Um, well, yeah, now, you may, now you may say, well, okay, that's, um, uh, of course I have now this very successful quantum theory, and um, if I ask quantum theory, um, if I uh, click here my single photon source, uh, what do I expect? At which of these two um, outputs am I going to find the photon? And quantum theory is going to predict you, well, you're going to find a photon here with 50% probability. So this is um, something that is intrinsically built into quantum theory. Quantum theory won't provide you with an answer uh, to the question which way this, uh, the photon really went, but um, 
it, uh, uh, it, it will only tell you um, probabilities for individual measurement outcomes. Okay? And we call that objective randomness because the theory does not provide you with a more detailed prediction of what's going on. Now, if you, uh, and that's actually something that Einstein realized very early on um, back in 1917 in a beautiful paper about uh, actually spontaneous and, and stimulated emission. He realizes that and says the weakness of the theory, of quantum theory that is, lies in the fact um, that time and direction of the elementary process, in that case the single photon uh, actually hitting the beam splitter, uh, is left um, uh, to chance. Okay. And the end of the paper, by the way, he also writes, and I'm pretty sure that uh, after some time a more intelligent person is going to come and will actually um, get rid of these mathematical deficiencies and will come up with something that works better. Right? So this was 1917, so 95 years ago. <laughs> Not, nothing happened um, since then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the second challenge is related to that one. Instead of putting a detector here, let's assume we just recombine those two possible paths of the photon and ask, um, well, what is the probability that the photon detector clicks here? Okay. Uh, and the naive way of answering this question would be, well, if the photon goes the upper way, and we saw that it went uh, one of the two ways because the detector clicked, for example, in A with 50% probability, so if the photon took the way A, well, then it arrives at the second beam splitter, and we know what happens with a single photon at a beam splitter. With 50% probability, it will end up in one of the two arms. You can argue the same way for the lower path. Well, if it goes in that direction as a beam splitter and it turns out that you will say because of our previous experiment with 50% probability it will end up in one of those two arms. So if you sum that up, it means our prediction, of, um, our naive prediction of this experiment would be with 50% probability one of those detectors is going to click. If we do the experiment, turns out this is not the case. If the two paths here are equally long, we know interference occurs um, because of um, quantum theory telling us um, this strange superposition of the two possibilities of the paths and with 100% probability uh, this detector is going to click. That means that the outcome of this experiment is in direct conflict with the assumption that the photon went either this way or that way. So which way did the photon go? This is the second challenge of quantum theory. Um, well, the answer of quantum theory is A plus B. Okay? Um, Quantum physicists are lazy people, and normally they say, well, that means the photon went both ways. That's simply not true. Uh, what, what it really means is when quantum physicists say the photon went both ways, what they mean is um, the uh, outcome of my experiment is in conflict with the assumption that it went either this way or that way. Okay? It's just a short way of saying that, the photon went both ways. But we know what we mean when we say it. <laughs> Um, so eventually, it's just a short way of, of, of rephrasing that. So this is our, these are our challenges of quantum physics. We have individual measurement outcomes which do not have a more fundamental explanation. Probabilities are fundamentally built in into quantum theory, and we do have a situation um, that really challenges our intuition about the physical world. We have a situation where we know the input, so the skier uh, riding towards the tree, we know the output, we get a result, but if we try to understand in our classical terms what happened in between, we arrive at extremely strange views of the world. Okay? So these are basically the two challenges that make up quantum theory. And this is something that from the very beginning on bothered the founding fathers of quantum theory. Um, can we go beyond this fact that we do have probabilistic predictions for individual events. Can it be that we have a more fundamental theory where 
quantum theory is just a boundary case um, and like, like statistical theory versus thermodynamics. Right? Um, and Einstein was one of, uh, one of the, the scientists who really thought a lot about that. And uh, th this question was the origin of this very famous paper by Einstein, Wodolski, and Rose in 1935, uh, posing the question if the quantum mechanical description of physical reality can be considered complete. Okay? So that actually, um, couldn't it be that uh, there is a more underlying theory that would provide us with an answer to the question, which way did the particle actually go? Uh, it's a very beautiful paper. I recommend everyone to read it. Um, the New York Times also got a copy of the paper, so it made it on the front page of the New York Times just a day before the paper came out. Einstein was furious because he actually uh, didn't like this communica communication with the press. So you see, uh, um, Einstein attacks quantum theory. A scientist and two colleagues find it is not complete, <laughs> even though correct. <laughs> well, so... <laughs> Um, the bottom line of this paper, I, I don't walk, walk you through it, but I just tell you the bottom line is that um, they actually say, um, so they think that what they have shown is that the wave function does not provide a complete description of the physical reality, okay, which is correct, because we, we, when we, we just saw that. Um, and we left open the question of whether or not such a description exists. We believe, however, this is the famous final sentence of this, of this paper, that such a theory is possible. Okay. Um, before I tell you the solution to that, um, I introduce you to the notion of entanglement. Um, Schrödinger was the one who coined this term, and entanglement is essentially, you see again, we have here the plus, entanglement is essentially a superposition, not of A and B, but of correlations between two systems. Okay? Instead, in, instead of having now two paths where we have a superposition between them, we now have correlations of two systems, and now we have a correlation, um, a, 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 a superposition of the correlations of these two systems. With very interesting consequences. Um, if, if, if we can create such an entangled state, um, it, me it, it means that the only knowledge that we have about uh, two particles being entangled is about the correlations of the systems. So they can both be either, let's say, zero, which means, for example, both have black hair, uh, or they can be one, so both have red hair. Okay? Um, if this is the complete description of our system, this doesn't provide us with any information about the individual particle. So we cannot, even in principle, know before measuring the system, the particle, which color it actually has, whether it's zero or one. Only the measurement will determine the color, and once we have measured one, we know immediately because of the correlations here um, what the other one has. So this is sort of the, uh, the phenomenology of entanglement. Um, a very funny side note, if you read, so this uh, Schrödinger introduced that in 35 in a, in, a, in a very beautiful paper. And today we use it as a technical term. But if you read the paper where he introduces it, um, this, this, this term emerges, so to speak. It's, it's really, uh, um, it's, it's beautiful um, where he, um, first of, in, the, in the first part of the paper, he talks about entanglement of predictions. Okay? And then uh, later on he talks about entanglement of our knowledge. He just tries to describe the situation that you have when two particles are combined together in this strange quantum mechanical way. And then later on he says, well, the psi functions are tangled up. Okay? Uh, the, the, the expectation catalogs, they are mixed with each other. And only in the very last part of the paper, um, he just talks about entanglement as a technical term. So it's um, a very beautiful example how technical terms are introduced into physics when you simply try to introduce a new concept. 
Okay, now, so entanglement was also used by, by, by Einstein, Bodolsky, and Rosen in their paper um, with the simple argument, well, look, um, if, I, if, if I have such an entangled system, um, I, I measure uh, one property, let's say this uh, uh, property, uh, um, whatever, um, uh, I, I, I measure the property 0 or 1, and I get, I get a result, and from that I can, I can actually infer um, the property of the other system. But I can also measure on a complementary basis, 0 plus 1. Uh, this would also be perfectly correlated, but it is a complementary uh, uh, property that, according to quantum theory, I cannot know uh, with uh, the same precision as the uh, with, 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 with uh, arbitrary precision at the same time to my to my uh, um, property zero or one. And um, by that simple argument, that because using this entangled state by measuring one system, I can always infer. Um, either one or the complementary property of the other system, he concludes, well, um, that means that uh, these properties have to have existed um, beforehand. And that means that uh, uh, entanglement um, shows that quantum theory is actually an incomplete description of physical reality. Enters John Bell in 1964. And the main message of John Bell is, um, well, what Einstein wrote is fully correct, Okay. The quantum physical description of physical, uh, uh, the quantum mechanical description of physical reality is incomplete. The point is, it cannot be completed. Okay? If you um, try to come up with a more complete theory that is based on the assumption, the joint assumption of locality in the sense of Einstein locality and of realism in the sense that uh, um, uh, measurement outcomes are predetermined um, by properties that the system has before the measurement, then there is no way that you can come up with a more complete physical theory that would describe all quantum physical phenomena. Okay? And this is what he put into Bell's theorem. The essence of Bell's theorem is um, if you have such an, such, uh, such an entangled uh, uh, state of two particles, and you distribute it to Alice and Bob, and you start making measurements on, 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 on this uh, here at, uh, at Alice and at Bob. So you, you, you try to measure, um, as I said, so you try to measure property 0 or 1 or 0 plus 1 and so on, and then you compare um, with, the, uh, with the measurement results that Bob got, who also can choose between different measurement settings. And you build up correlations between your measurement outcomes. Then it turns out any possible theory that is based on this joint assumption of local realism um, actually uh, results in an upper bound on the possible correlations that you can measure between Alice and Bob. Turns out, if you have an entangled source, if your particles are entangled, then quantum theory tells you you can violate this bound um, by a factor of, uh, um, of square root of 2. Okay? So that tells you that quantum theory, that the, 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 the correlations that are due to quantum theory cannot be explained by any um, a, a, a theory that is based on a joint assumption of locality and realism. Okay? So this is the main message of Bell's theorem. Um, quantum mechanical description of physical reality is incomplete, yes, but it cannot be completed based on the joint assumptions of locality and realism. That's the message. Um, and of course now, once the, the theorem was out and there have been uh, follow-up theorems um, by, 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 by Bell, Klauser Horn, um, uh, some uh, Klauser and Schimini holds, then later on by, by Greenberger, Horn, and Zeilinger, who actually showed that um, even um, the assumption of elements of physical reality for a three particle state is in contradiction with, um, with, with, with quantum theory. Um, 
that uh, um, so now you had all those um, all those uh, theorems out, uh, say um, uh, in 64 Bell's theorem, um, and the question was now, well, if you measure actually the correlations between such an entangled state, well, maybe quantum theory doesn't hold. Okay, so maybe it is the case if you measure those correlations, um, actually we will find a value um, that is smaller than two. Okay, so this was still in the realm of possibility. And therefore, uh, people started to build up experiments um, that, um, that, that tried to uh, test these um, this inequalities of, the, of, of these assumptions. Okay, uh, what I put here, I almost forgot that. So just to make it very clear what it means, uh, this, local re this local realism. It means um, you cannot think of your particles that go to Alice and to Bob as having their properties um, somehow with them in suitcases, okay? And the detector is just like a border control, please open your suitcase, and I read it out, okay? So this way of thinking uh, simply doesn't work, okay? This is the very essence of Bell's theorem. Forget about um, uh, thinking of entangled states in that way. Okay, so then there was a, a series of Bell experiments. I only go very briefly over that. The very first one was conducted by Stuart Friedman and John Clauser, and uh, they eventually um, uh, didn't see any deviation from quantum theory. Of course, um, if you want to test really um, this, this, this assumption of local realism, your experiment um, has to fulfill certain boundary conditions in order for uh, loopholes, uh, which means um, possible uh, theories based on local realism um, that can still sneak in because the experiment was not, uh, was not performed uh, carefully enough. And therefore, uh, so this experiment had still uh, many loopholes open. Um, for example, um, the polarizers were set in a, in a fixed session, in, in a fixed fashion. So that means, in principle, um, the, the source at the point of emission could have already known what the polarization correlation here is, and uh, in principle, you could come up now with a theory that, with the prior knowledge of the, of the polarization correlators, uh, could have produced the results of the violation of a Bell inequality, and so on and so on. So there are many loopholes. We don't have the time to go into all the details, but um, there are many other experiments that have been performed later on that uh, as, as, um, successively started to, to close um, all these loopholes. So, for example, there was were experiments by Aspe and, um, and, and by the Zeilinger group, Gregor Weiss et al., that um, actually started to, to, to close, for example, this locality loophole, then there's a so-called randomness loophole, um, and so on. Well, the thing that I would like to point out is that in order to, for example, close the locality loophole, it's already important that you start to increase the distance between the sources, because the point is you should switch, uh, you, 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 you should choose your settings here between those, between Alice and Bob, in space-like separated regions. So um, that means um, when the photon arrives here, um, you should make a choice and, 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 and make a setting here. And these settings and the choice should have been made space-like separated such that um, no information whatsoever could have arrived prior to the measurement here in no reference frame. Okay? So this is the point, and therefore you have to actually, because switching takes some time, and therefore you have to separate um, your sources um, far, uh, to, a, uh, to a far distance. And um, here's a, uh, one of the latest experiments by the Zeilinger group where they um, actually closed the so-called freedom of choice loophole, where they um, where also not only the setting of the polarizer was space-like separated from the setting of the other one, but also the choice um, that uh, is made to, uh, to choose the setting 
to, 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 to set the polarizer is space-like separated from the other side. And for that reason, they did this experiment between the two Canary Islands, between La Palma and Tenerife. Um, so they had an entangled photon source um, here in, uh, in, in uh, uh, La Palma. Uh, where was that one? That was actually in La Palma, the entangled photon source. Um, this is based on, on spontaneous parametric down conversion. Um, and the uh, entanglement was then distributed via telescopes. Um, so one photon was kept locally at La Palma. The other one was sent through a, a telescope to Tenerife. Tenerife, there's an optical ground station of the European Space Agency where they uh, actually uh, collected the photon and then they measured the correlation. And if you look at the, the um, basically space diagrams where um, these measurements and the choice of the measurements have been taking place, you can see that the settings were chosen uh, independently from, the, um, uh, uh, from each other. So this was the freedom of choice loophole. In the future, um, and that brings me now to, 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 to even longer distances, of course, um, what one definitely needs to do is no experiment has been performed so far where all loopholes have been closed simultaneously. I mean, nature would be very vicious, of course, um, if, um, uh, or malicious, uh, if uh, really for each experiment it would choose a different loophole um, to trying to ruin your experiment. But nevertheless, it's uh, certainly an important experiment to close all of them at the same time. Uh, so there's another one uh, talking about photons here. is the so-called detection loophole. This has been closed, for example, with entangled uh, massive particles, like entangled ions, entangled superconducting circuits, and so on. So here, detection you can do with 100% efficiency. In the photon case, uh, it turns out in order to uh, exclude the possibility that a sub-ensemble of your particles that is not detected would actually be able to, to still um, uh, obey local real, uh, to, to, to complete a local realistic description, um, if you would be able to observe the full ensemble, you need uh, a certain threshold in your detection probability, and that is on the order of uh, uh, 70-80%. And, for, for, and, and this is what people are working on right now for the photonic case. And for the atom case, people are trying to distribute entangled atoms over large distances and then using detection efficiency of the atom. So there's a lot of things going on. This would be basically a separate talk. Um, the reason why I'm telling you all this story is um, because uh, all these experiments were motivated by very deep fundamental questions about the underlying um, nature of physical reality. Okay, so is there a possibility that local realistic description can be maintained or do we really need a completely new understanding and give up either locality or realism to understand uh, our physical world. At the same time, with these developments, something else happened. And um, what you see here is actually um, the number of citations of the EPR paper versus time. Okay? So th the first one is uh, 1935 to 1944. Okay? So uh, essentially... These are uh, basically uh, um, reply by Bohr to the paper and some, some other people. So you see like 10 or 15 papers. Um, so between 1935 and 1970, so like 40 years, nothing happens at all. Right? Then the first Bell experiments come, and then you see something happens. Um, some new ideas pop up. And uh, it turns out that based on these ideas of entanglement and, um, uh, and, and the impossibility, um, uh, so the, 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 the objective randomness of quantum theory, ideas like quantum cryptography popped up, 
quantum teleportation, and so on and so on. Ideas that you can actually store information in a quantum system and then use the quantum properties to process information. And this is this whole era of quantum information that we are now in that um, results in these ideas of quantum computing and so on and so on. And um, what I would like to very briefly uh, just show you is the idea of quantum cryptography. Uh, it's a beautiful idea based on... Um, so here I just focus on the, on the idea based on entanglement that has been put forward by Arthur Eckert in 91. You have an entangled source, you distribute it between Alice and Bob, and I told you that um, uh, the, the property of the individual particle is completely random, right? So it's, 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 uh, you do not, cannot know it in principle. So measurement here, in that case, is polarization entangled photons of the polarization locally will result in a perfectly random um, sequence of outcomes, right? Because of this feature of objective randomness of quantum theory. So you have locally now um, perfect random sequence, but if Bob on the other side actually measures the very same property than Alice, then his outcome will be perfectly correlated with the outcome of Alice. So what you have now, if both happen to measure in the same basis, is you will have um, random sequence locally, but perfect correlations. I mean, this is just the perfect uh, starting condition to share, um, actually, uh, a secret message. Okay? You, have a, you, have a, you have a random key, and now you can start to share a secret. And, um, well, there are, there are, of course, many, many things to say here, how this is really implemented and so on. But I think the main idea is very clear and immediately uh, um, uh, very, very simple to, to, to understand. And actually, uh, well, so there the, are the, um, other proposals than Bennett and Brassard. Um, in 92, the very first experimental realizations um, basically go back to the groups of, of Zeilinger, of, of Kwiat, and, um, uh, uh, and, and, and Chizé uh, in 2000. Okay, um, why am I telling you that? Well, because um, I, I was trying to motivate a little bit the, the interest, of, uh, interest of space science in these, in these questions. It turns out quantum cryptography is something that... Um, uh, really raised extreme interest and is still um, uh, uh, um, uh, is still being pursued very actively. There are companies uh, coming up. There are uh, here is one example of, of, of uh, one of many global uh, uh, one of many local networks that are right now being set up and are tested all around the world. And the question that you may ask is, well, um, what about global quantum key distribution? How could I do that? This is a these are fiber links here. You see the distances are on the order of like 10, 20, 30, maybe 50 kilometer. Um, but how do I connect, um, I don't know, the US with Europe? Fiber link won't do. It simply doesn't work. Um, so the idea came up um, of, of using um, something like space-based quantum communication. And in order to do that, the question is, well, can we do all of that in free space? Can, it, can we distribute um, single photons and tangled photons via free space and eventually go up a satellite and start distributing that and use that for quantum communication? And um, this sparked a, a whole series of very, very beautiful experiments. Um, so uh, uh, here's one by, by, by Richard Hughes and, um, and, and, and Beth Northall and colleagues where they actually demonstrate free space quantum key distribution over 10 kilometers and in daylight. Um, and um, I, I didn't find a better picture, Richard, but this is uh, actually an on-site picture uh, that was made. Uh, this was sort of the truck where they had all the experiments um, in and demonstrated this uh, free space key distribution. Another experiment, this took place a little bit more early at the, um, in the Bavarian Alps, 
by the Weinfurter group and, and, and uh, together with John Rarity. And this continued. So um, at some point in 2008, we performed an experiment where we, uh, uh, where we reflected a, a, a photon, um, reflected a, a pulse um, from a, um, a corner cube satellite. And actually, the attenuation was such that on average, um, only a single photon was reflected back in the field of view. So it was sort of simulating a single photon link between a satellite and a ground station. Then there was the demonstration of distribution of quantum entanglement via free space, and only recently these papers are like uh, a month old or so in the archive, demonstrating quantum teleportation over 100 and 144 kilometers. So sort of this is the jump between 2003 and 2012. So all these developments have now led really in the possibilities of free space, uh, uh, um, um, free space uh, quantum communication. Uh, and so here are so the, the very early ideas date back to 98, I think, um, um, uh, again to, 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 to Richard and Beth. And um, this all has led now to developments that are taking place uh, right now. So uh, here's an example um, of an entangled photon source that is developed at this very moment in a collaboration between the, the Vienna Institute for, for, for Quantum Optics and uh, uh, some other European institutions and, and some space agencies where um, they, they try to um, actually fabricate a um, space-qualified entangled photon source. You see the, the challenges are, of course, uh, quite, um, uh, quite demanding because you need to go from a breadboard down to uh, something that uh, goes in this little space, has only a few kilos of mass, and so on. But uh, this is on the way, and um, this is quite uh, exciting uh, developments. Just to give you a very brief overview of what is being done right now, uh, all, over, all over the world there are uh, different projects that are um, being started and people try to go um, in, for example, Vienna is leading an effort to put this entangled photon source to the spa uh, International Space Station. Uh, Canada has some ongoing efforts. China has a mission that is uh, approved and launched, uh, is the, the launch is foreseen in 2016. Japan has a little mission where they actually try to launch something by 2013. Singapore uh, wants to test an entangled photon source also quite soon. So uh, there are many uh, things happening right now, and it's just very exciting times to see that. And, and I, I think the, the bottom line from that is that within the next uh, five or ten years, we will have shown that we can, can have quantum entanglement in space. And then um, we, uh, I guess the big question is, Beyond quantum cryptography, uh, what can we learn about the uh, underlying nature, the fundamental nature of quantum physics? And I think this, will be, this is going to be a nice example where then just an advanced technology will lead to the possibility of answering new questions that you uh, previously simply haven't thought about. Right? It's really, this is an enabling technology, and it, it is going to enable, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that, it is going to enable uh, simply new fundamental questions. We just need to think about that. Um, this is uh, just for completeness. Uh, only a few days ago, the, the Canadian uh, consortium put on the archive actually a paper uh, with a long list of possible uh, tests that one might be able to do with an entangled photon source, a single photon source on a satellite. And I, I, I won't read that to you. We don't have time. I, I, I would like to go on. Um, but so uh, I think this, this just underlines what I just said. So once we have the source, people think hard. And once you think hard, simply new ideas uh, pop up. Okay, so part two. Why the classical? Um, this is 
a super interesting uh, question. And um, one of the nice things about being in Vienna is that um, I'm on the fourth floor, and on the fourth floor also there's, there's the library of the, of, of, um, of the, uh, of the university, uh, of the physics department of the University of Vienna. And the library also has with it the Schrödinger archive. So you can go there and you can actually browse through the, the letters and, and so on of Schrödinger. And when you do that, you find a very interesting letter that was that, date, that dates back to, sorry, you can see that, uh, that date ba dates back to April 35. Uh, no, sorry, August 35. So this was after the EPR paper. It's August 35. It's Albert Einstein to Erwin Schrödinger. Um, old Lyme, so Einstein was already in the US and trying to bring uh, Schrödinger to Princeton. So basically all of the letters had this purpose. This letter had also another purpose. So uh, Einstein sh writes, Dear Schrödinger, you are, in fact, the only human with whom I really like to discuss. <laughs> and um, then there's some, some, some other stuff. And then, although in our expectations of where to go, we are the strongest antipodes. Okay, and what does he mean? Well, he means the interpretation of quantum physics, interpretation uh, of the wave function. What does the wave function mean? And here comes the funny twist to the story. Um, the reason why Einstein wrote this letter is, um, was to convince Schrödinger that his view, so Schrödinger's view of the wave function was too realistic. Okay? So this was the purpose of the letter. So Einstein uh, came up with an example. He told him, look, uh, your, uh, your, your view of the wave function is, is way too realistic. Um, if you really think that the wave function uh, describes reality in that way, then you bump into the following problem. And here's the problem. Don't be afraid, I read it to you. Okay? Uh, he says, uh, take the following example. You take a system, uh, a substance, he said, he says, in a chemically uh, metastable equilibrium, a, a, a chunk of gunpowder, which can inflame itself via inner forces. Okay? And the average lifetime is on the order of a year. Um, in the beginning, um, the... Uh, in, in the beginning, uh, the, the, the psi function uh, characterizes this state um, via a sufficiently well-defined macroscopic uh, state. Your equation, he writes to Schrödinger, your equation, however, takes care that after a year or so, this is not any longer the case. After a year, the psi function describes a sort of mixture between being exploded and not yet exploded system. Okay? By no art of interpretation can this psi function be made an adequate description of the real factual situation. Because in reality, there is no such thing between exploded and not yet exploded. Okay? Um, well, we, we, we all know where this example leads to. Uh, this example leads to the famous Schrödinger cat. Here's the quantum optical version of, of, of Schrodinger's cat. If we take again our single photon source, we have the beam splitter, and we know that after the beam splitter, the photon is in a sort of, remember, A plus B, okay? So we don't know what. Um, and quantum theory takes care that after the interaction with the beam splitter, we create this, um, well, entangled state which contains um, a cat which is alive and a cat which is less alive, okay? <laughs> so, the point of this is that quantum theory allows for superpositions of macroscopically distinct states. Okay? No matter 
um, in, in, in what this macroscopic distinction, uh, how this macroscopic distinction is realized. Whether this is a cat being in two really macroscopically distinct states of a life or that, or um, of a massive object being here or there, right? with really macroscopic separation in between, such that I can, uh, with my own uh, senses, uh, 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 see that, um, that, there's a, that there's a difference. Um, so, can that be true? I mean, this puts some, some very, this has some very deep consequences, of course, to such macroscopically distinct states, because in a way, we always believe that such states are realized in nature. Whatever we, uh, but when we say are realized in nature, exist, um, we always really mean that there's no way that we can invert them. So there's a sort of irreversibility in that. And what that essentially tells you is that irreversibility is something that simply doesn't exist as a concept in quantum theory for, no, for, for non-state whatsoever. So the way that we are uh, going in, uh, in looking in this direction is how can we really have macroscopically distinct systems and have large systems is we started thinking about mechanical systems. So Keith already uh, pointed that out in the introduction. So can we create superpositions of, for example, center of mass states of, of large uh, uh, macroscopic resonators or of, uh, let's say, spheres that are separated um, in, that are in a superposition of being uh, in, 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 in uh, here or in this location. This requires that um, you can place such massive mechanical systems somehow into quantum states. And um, during the last, uh, say, six, seven years or so, um, this really took off. This, this whole um, uh, attempt to, to, to create such, uh, such quantum states. So uh, here are just some examples, right? Mechanical systems um, coupled to, um, to, to, to charge quantum systems, okay? Um, mechanical systems coupled to spin quantum systems. Mechanical systems coupled to photons. Um, there are many, many examples in the literature that you find right now, like uh, here at Caltech, an, ex uh, an experiment um, by, by Matt LaHaye and by, by, by Keith and Mike Rukas, coupling a mechanical system, the superconducting Cooper pair box. Um, another one from Delft, I think, uh, coupling uh, carbon nanotubes with single electrons, coupling uh, from, from, from um, uh, uh, um, Andrew Cleland and John Martinez at UCSP, coupling a superconducting phase qubit to a mechanical system. Um, spin, right? Uh, Dan Rugard um, with his uh, very famous MRFM methods, so this resonance force microscopy, then recently coupling NV centers to, to, to mechanical systems. Uh, and also with photons, uh, there are a couple of works where they were demonstrated that you can strongly couple photons to mechanical systems. So um, bottom line is because you can functionalize mechanical systems, so you just put something on them like a mirror, you couple to lights, uh, uh, something conducting, you couple to charge, a magnet, you couple to spin and so on. Um, these systems uh, really enable um, a whole range of possible ways to put them into the quantum regime. Let me um, very briefly just mention the idea how we, using light, um, try to um, push these things um, uh, and, and operate center of mass states of those systems in a quantum machine. The main idea is very simple. You utilize radiation pressure inside optical cavities. That is something that is well known here at Caltech. We have here um, LIGO uh, going on. So if you have a cavity and you have, uh, you have uh, uh, light in there, then you have radiation pressure. So um, the point is, if you have a cavity with a moving boundary, for example, then 
um, the mechanical motion directly couples to your frequency of the cavity. And this is um, immediately uh, uh, the direct optomechanical um, coupling interaction. Okay? Um, so what you have is, as intrinsic interactions, uh, two things. Number one, um, you have an intrinsic optical nonlinearity. So if you have a beam of light that couples resonantly into your cavity, you shift, just due to radiation pressure, um, your mechanical system. So you shift the cavity length, but um, now the light is reflected from a different position, so you collect a phase shift. And the, the more light you put in, the larger is the phase shift. So what you have now is um, you have an intensity-dependent intensity phase shift of the light that comes out of your optomechanical system. And this is an optical nonlinearity. That's a care medium. Okay? So, so this thing acts as a care medium for light. At the same time, if you detune the light that pumps the cavity, what happens is now that um, the mechanical motion starts to modulate the intracavity amplitude. What does that mean? Well, you modulate the radiation pressure on your system. And when you have an ammonic oscillator and you start to introduce a position-dependent force, what you, change, what you change is the spring constant of the system. Okay? So just by, by pumping your system now detuned with respect to the cavity frequency, you, you change the, the spring constant of your mechanical system. And because of the fact that the cavity has a finite lifetime, this force that acts position-dependent is retarded in time which means that um, you don't only have a position-dependent force, but you, only have a you also have a momentum-dependent force. So you not only change the spring constant, but you also change the damping. And now what you have suddenly is you have full control over the mechanical susceptibility, so both the real part and the imaginary part. That's all you need. We can now, we, we, we have, um, have nonlinear control over the light, we have uh, full control of the mechanical susceptibility um, because of this optomechanical coupling. And um, well, the, the Braginsky was the first one to point that out already in the 70s, did some experiments with microwaves in the 80s. Uh, Dorsal, Mestre, and Walter did the very first uh, um, optics experiments in this direction, and um, many others uh, followed. I give you uh, in one minute the quantum picture of that. What I just told you is you have a cavity with a moving uh, mechanical system. Um, so here is your cavity frequency, and let's, let's assume you pump your cavity, okay? So not single photons, really pump it hard. Um, such that um, you can linearize the interaction and um, you operate in a regime where your cavity line width is small with respect to your mechanical frequency. If you pump the cavity now, rapidly tuned at lower frequencies, the only way to scatter photons inside the cavity is by getting some extra, frequent, uh, getting some extra energy. The energy that the system takes from the mechanics. Okay? So what you have now is um, you have coherent energy exchange between the cavity photons and the mechanics. And in, in, in two-mode quantum optics, this is known as a beam-splitter interaction, okay? coherent energy exchange. If you pump on the blue side, the only way to scatter photons in, in, into the cavity is by putting some extra energy into the, uh, into the mechanics. Okay? Um, that means um, you create joint excitations between the cavity field and the mechanics. In two-mode quantum optics, again, this is known as a two-mode squeezing interaction. So what we have now um, is taking all of that together, we have now a method to obtain full quantum optical control via the beam splitting interaction and the two mode squeezing interaction over the mechanical system just by using quantum states of light. This is beautiful. Now we have everything. Okay? You can even introduce some nonlinearities by doing single photon counting, blah, blah, blah. 
Okay, just play all these, these wonderful tricks of two more quantum optics. This is just equivalent. You only replace now one optical mode by a mechanical mode, and you can, you can actually put such a massive mechanical system into the quantum regime. This is, this is really wonderful. Of course, um, there are a couple of uh, um, boundary conditions um, in order to play all these tricks and apply all those beautiful quantum operations. You want your mechanical system to be already in some sort of pure state. Because if you apply some unit operations to mixed states, well, it's still mixed states and you won't see anything quantum. So um, what you need is you need to um, start to prepare some minimum entropy states. So you need to, well, ba basically just laser cool your system down to the ground state, okay? And this you can easily do because this is the way to do it, no? Your beam splitter interaction. You pump your system. If the cavity decay rate is large, uh, the photons that you just scattered into the cavity that took away uh, uh, a mechanical phonon energy uh, leave the cavity uh, uh, immediately and take away the energy. And that's sideband-resolved laser cooling. This has been done with ions ever since, and this is how the normal mode motion of an ion chain is cooled down to the quantum ground state. And this is why they can do uh, uh, trapped ion quantum computing. And um, on the other hand, um, of course, if you, cup, if, you, if you then have prepared your system um, in the ground state, then you can start cranking up the interaction strength and do all the uh, fancy physics. Um, since I'm running out of time, I just give you the overview and won't go into the details. So you see many groups around the world have started this uh, endeavor. So uh, here's phonon number versus sideband resolution. And uh, the main message of this slide is here that um, uh, these points close to the quantum ground state have all been realized last year. Right? So that means that sort of um, this whole field emerged quasi-instantaneously around 2004, 2005. And, um, uh, and now, uh, in 2011, also almost uh, simultaneously, uh, uh, every, uh, all the groups are now have, um, and with, with different methods prepared the systems into the quantum ground state. Maybe just to point out uh, one example, this is the correlation that Keith already mentioned. Um, the, uh, recently, the Painter Group um, actually managed to um, cool the mechanical motion of such a photonic crystal cavity down to the quantum ground state. We were partly involved in that, um, but the main work was really done here at, um, at, at Caltech. And the main idea here is what you have is, is a photonic crystal cavity. So this is like a Fabry-Perot resonator, but just on a nanomechanical um, beam. And um, you, you see that in that case, now the mechanical motion of this uh, nanomechanical beam um, modulates the cavity frequency, and there you have your optomechanical coupling. And what you do now is, um, by using an optical taper, you just feed light into this photonic crystal cavity. You detune now with respect to your cavity resonance um, to lower frequencies. And uh, what you can see is that you can nicely go from uh, approximately 100 quanta down to uh, less than uh, one quantum of um, energy. Uh, also, uh, well, again, you can do many things. Uh, already back in 2009, we demonstrated that you can um, reach the strong coupling regime. Um, then there are many ideas how to use that for quantum information processing um, and so on. Uh, the interesting part is um, here's an overview of current optomechanical systems that are being pursued at the moment. The intriguing aspect of this slide is um, the mass range. Look at that. The different systems that are now being controlled by the very same physical principles. So just mechanical motion affecting um, optical cavity and therefore inducing radiation pressure effects and then enabling quantum optomechanical uh, interactions. 
span the whole range from something like, um, well, here, this is a cloud of ultra-cold atoms, so 10 to the minus 20 kilograms up to on the order of kilograms. Right? Very same principles, almost 20 orders of magnitude in mass. And I find that really intriguing because that means now, um, if you start doing experiments where mass plays a role, you have a possibility of really covering a large parameter regime and um, actually um, many different physical implementations. Right? So this is, for me, one of the most intriguing aspects of this whole field of putting mechanical systems in the quantum regime, that you have access to this incredibly large span of masses. And this is, the rest of my talk is now going to be about um, what we can do with that. So here is one possibility. I already posed the question in, a, uh, in, in one way. Here is another way of posing the question. Um, eventually, uh, we, feel, we, we, we feel uneasy about this possibility of having a superposition of a cat being dead or alive because we have um, an, uh, uh, basically an observation that we make every day. We only observe cats that are either dead or alive. This is just a matter of fact. No one of us has ever seen yet a cat in a superposition. And because of that fact, um, of course, we, we, we may ask, well, so who killed the cat? Okay, so who actually is responsible for us finding the cat always in just one specific state and not in a superposition state? And there are a couple of possible answers. One is, well, this is just within standard quantum physics. Standard quantum physics tells you um, if your isolated quantum system couples to another quantum system which you cannot control so well and, if you, and which you maybe cannot also look at, um, which essentially means from a quantum physics point of view, you trace out this other system that where your quantum system couples to, suddenly um, you don't see any quantum features anymore because your system gets entangled with the environment and what you really would have to do in order to see quantum features would be to um, measure each and every particle your quantum system has uh, gotten entangled to. And normally you can't do that. You need to uh, throw away a couple of particles and you don't see any quantum properties anymore. Although, in principle, fundamentally, there still would be some. Okay? And this is decoherence. So decoherence doesn't really solve the problem um, why fundamentally um, there could be only one of the two. It just tells you, well, maybe fundamentally there is never either one of the two. Okay? It's just that when we look at it, we just see one of the two. But fundamentally, our, our reality is strange. This is the one. The other one... Well, it's new physics, okay? Um, something is going to happen when we go to cats. Okay? There is going to be a, I don't know, cat interaction, whatever. Some cat force that we have not yet discovered. When we do such an experiment with cats, then there will be a new term in the Schrodinger equation, okay? And we haven't seen that yet because we haven't done the experiment yet. Okay, so let's try to do the experiment. Um, so here's one, one other example. I apologize for this writing here. This is messed up. Um, so possible, there are possibilities that are being discussed for this new physics. Is, uh, Penrose is a very famous example. Uh, Sir Roger Penrose proposed some time ago that gravity could play uh, a dominant role and actually be responsible for such a so-called state collapse, for the fact that a quantum system, once it's large enough, massive enough, um, will only be found in one specific state and never even in principle, in a superposition. And there, uh, well, so there are different theories, uh, experimental proposals. Uh, actually, there's a, this was by, by the Baumeister group. There was a related proposal by, 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 by Keith's group. Um, and um, so the question is, can we perform experiments that would be able to test such theories? Um, 
in the end, I now skip a little bit because we are too late. So in the end, the question is, can we, by building up such experiments, enter a regime where such uh, uh, alternative theories, new theories, would make predictions that would deviate significantly from the predictions of quantum theory. Okay? Um, so uh, one possibility uh, is... I just need to show you that, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too nice not to show it. Um, so recently, uh, there has been a beautiful experiment by Andrew Cleland and John Martinez, who basically created a superposition state um, of, of such a huge uh, system, um, uh, micrometer scale, aluminum nitride, piezo. The point is, so the mass is huge of this thing, okay? So there was like 10 to the 13 atoms. Um, and if you calculate the, the distance of the superposition state, okay? So now you, now you have two possible states of your system that you put in a superposition. And the question is now, what is the distance between the two? And the distance in this experiment was in the order of 10 to the minus 16 meter. Okay, so you have created a superposition of this supermassive system, but the distance is on the order of 10 to the minus 16 meter. So that's like 10 to the minus 10 times the diameter or the, the, the physical extension of the system. Okay? Um, there are other experiments, of course, in the world. There are like uh, this beautiful meta-wave interference experiment by, by, by the group of Markus Arndt, also in Vienna. They have demonstrated interference with 430 atoms. It's, of course, way, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's um, um, much less atoms, but the separation in the superposition was in the order of 100 nanometer, which is 50 times the diameter of the molecule. So it's really like the molecule being here and being, well, you can 50 times. I'm not allowed to leave the microphone because then you won't hear me. So, uh, take, take an atom interferometer, right? Um, uh, one atom and the separation is on the order of a centimeter. Right? You, you can build a neutron interferometer with a centimeter arm length difference, um, which is 10 to the 13 times the diameter. So it seems that um, going to larger systems, we have to sacrifice uh, actually the, the position, uh, the, the separation, so the, the, the macroscopic distinctness between our two states. So the question is now, can we come up with an experiment um, where we can really separate the center of mass macroscopically? Okay? Um, and there are a couple of proposals. I, I really, I just browse very uh, briefly through that. Um, the main idea is use the ideas of quantum optomechanics that I just told you about. Take a, a levitating object, a sphere, put it, trap it optically or trap it magnetically, and put a cavity around it. And then uh, you have a mechanically moving object. It couples dispersively to the cavity, and you can play the very same tricks. You pump now the cavity, detuned, and you can do everything. You can cool it to the quantum ground state, you can put it in superposition states, and so on and so on. Okay? So you do that, uh, and then you cool to the ground state, and then you let it fall. You, 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 you switch everything off, and you let it fall. The wave function expands, expands, and then you put some type of block. Okay? You make a double slit experiment with this huge wave function. Um, so you do the double slit experiment. Um, uh, let's say you put this block here and then uh, uh, conditioned on not seeing a particle here, uh, your wave function will then look like that. So you have now prepared um, a macroscopic superposition between um, a massive particle, um, this is like 50 nanometers or so, I think, um, being here um, and there. And the separation here, this delta x, is on the order of two times the radius uh, so approximately the diameter of, of, of our sphere. Okay? This would be the idea. If you 
put in the numbers, of course, this is very challenging. Um, if you go to like 50 or 100 nanometers, the fall times that are involved here, um, they reach the order of 1, 10, 100 seconds or so that is required to actually, uh, um, actually re-interfere the, 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 the wave function and then to observe interference fringes. Um, the nice thing about it, so the 100 seconds is the challenging part. The interesting part is if you now plot, uh, if you now calculate the decoherence rates of this superposition as a function of the radius of your, of your sphere, you see that uh, quantum theory is the blue one, scales quadratically. Why does it go up with radius? Well, because you have some uh, background gas. Okay, and this is it's just a cross-scattering, it's just a cross-section uh, of the scattering of the, of the background gas scales with the, with this, with the, with the area of the particle. Yeah? Um, at the same time, you have these other alternative theories. Penrose, um, Carly Hasi, Girardi, Rimney, Weber, Pearl. I didn't have time to tell you about those, but these are other alternative uh, theories. And you see, um, after some, uh, once you hit a certain size limit, you see that the decoherence rates that are predicted by those alternative theories overcome quantum theory, the, 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 the decoherence um, predictions of quantum theory. So we have now a way, in principle, to, um, to, to, to test for those theories, or to, let's say to falsify those theories. Um, the challenge, as I said once more, is you need these extremely long fall times once you, once you involve these this large massive particles. Uh, how can you realize that? And that brings me back to the beginning. Uh, one possibility is go to space. Okay? 100 seconds of fall time, well, you need to go to a microgravity environment. And one idea would um, uh, actually be, um, I, I put Lisa here deliberately because uh, the amazing thing about Lisa is that, um, that the plant techno optical technology that uh, would be used for Lisa is essentially all what you would need for such an experiment. You need, uh, you need, a, you need a little cavity, you need a medium power laser um, in order to trap your bead. And you need an environment that, well, of course, that is somehow shielded. But you need a relatively simple optical setup um, and then some, well, well-developed techniques to trap those particles and so on. But I think the basic optics that you need is all, would all readily be available uh, if we would have that. So one way to go is, this is the so-called LISA Pathfinder. So uh, there is actually now an example that a Pathfinder is good for something. Um, because the Pathfinder actually is a, is a, is a test balloon for LISA. And it, uh, you see this is actually uh, um, a thing that is being developed. It's supposed to test the basic principles of, um, of LISA in one experiment. There are two corner cubes and you interferometrically essentially measure um, the, the stability of these two corner cubes. Uh, point being that, so this is how it looks like then. So if the corner cubes here, the, the full optics. But the main point being that the optical parts are all there. So this is actually, um, this is actually bonded, uh, bonded optics, okay? Um, so very stable, you can have, this is a full interferometer that is on there. You can add cavities if you want, and all of that exists. And we are right now actually collaborating with Astrium to do a little test bonded interferometer to, to, to trap um, actually such, uh, such spheres. Um, and uh, so recently, uh, so together um, with, with, with uh, colleagues from Astrium, um, Rainer, uh, Keith and I uh, suggested a sort of space mission where we um, just use the LISA configuration. So this is uh, the LTP, this is all LTP, the, the LISA technology package, the Pathfinder, and we just modify slightly the optical bench. 
And um, then there's a full mission proposal I defined on the archive how you could use that to actually create those, those macroscopic um, superposition states. Um, the, the experiment, what is, what is the TLR, uh, the TLR right? What's the, what's the technological, no, TRL, what is the technological readiness level? Well, it, um, close to, well, the, the, we have lasers that also fly, so. Um, but, <laughs> but here's the, that's the, status of the, uh, that's the status of the experiment. So we, um, you see what we want to have is we want to trap particles in a cavity. So here's our cavity. Um, you see here a whole string of particles that is trapped inside the cavity, inside the cavity field. We add a dipole trap that is orthogonal to the cavity, and therefore we can actually single out individual ones. So what you have here is we have here a single silica bead of 250 nanometers trapped inside uh, the cavity, levitating at around uh, 4 millibar right now. And um, what, you, what you see here is actually um, if you now scan the laser over the cavity frequency, you can see that um, actually there are motional sidebands that are induced due to the motion of the bead on, the, on, on this laser beam. Okay, so that means we really do have already optomechanical coupling, so the, 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 the bead really dispersively couples to the mechanical motion. So these are the first steps. Of course, this doesn't fly yet, um, but I think it's, it's pretty clear um, uh, in which direction this has to go. And we also have some pro programs together with ESA to develop that into, um, uh, well, to simply increase the, the, the TRL. Another possibility that's something we are looking in right now together with uh, Ray Chow and also uh, with Keith's group is can we magnetically levitate instead of optically levitating. And there are some ideas. I don't bore you with the, with the details. Main point is you levitate a superconducting sphere and instead of having optical cavities, you just have two LC circuits, the um, mechanical motion of the sphere because of the Meissner effect modulates the mutual inductance between these two coils. If you drive that coil and if the drive is off resonant with the pickup coil, you have again the very same uh, uh, um, uh, um, anti-Stokes resonantly enhanced, the Stokes or anti-Stokes scattering phenomena. And you can then uh, magnetomechanically modify the, the, the sphere. So right now we're fooling around with centimeter-sized lead spheres. Um, this is a very uh, fun experiment. Okay, I uh, basically should come to an end. I just, um, so here this is, the, this is the last part that I wanted to tell you about. Um, I won't tell you any details, I just give you one example, okay? This is, um, I, 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 I um, beg for this um, <laughs> one extra, not two extra, well, let's see. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so the main point about gravity, there are many, many beautiful experiments where gravity is combined with quantum physics. They all have in common right now that gravity is simply treated uh, in the strict Newtonian limit, flat space-time. So gravity, the gravitational field simply acts as an additional um, field that you can simply uh, uh, add as a potential to your, to your Hamiltonian, and therefore you get some nice uh, additional phases to your wave function, and you can have these beautiful uh, uh, gravitationally-induced interference fringes. This is the very first experiment, this is the, the seminal COW experiment, C-O-W, of Kalela, Oberhauser, and Werner. Um, later on, of course, related uh, all these uh, atomic interferometer, gradiometers, measuring uh, uh, gravity gradients. There are also examples of gravitationally bound states of neutrons and so on. But they all have in common that um, this is the underlying, uh, flat spacetime is the underlying physical principle. Now, um, you could think, well, what? So there are basically two questions, right? So can gravity be quantized? Oh, there's one question. Can gravity be quantized? And two possible answers, yes or no. 
Um, well, it, it could be that it can fundamentally not be quantized. Okay? If this is the case, um, then you need some way to marry um, a, a non-quantum field theory with a quantum field theory. And there are some ideas, for example, that you uh, well, just put expectation values um, for, for, for all the uh, um, energy stress tensors um, instead of operators. And uh, then what you end up with are some very strange effects. Namely, uh, for example, this is the so-called Schrodinger-Newton equation that uh, Diyoshi has, has, has put forward in 84 and has also, also been discussed in other contexts. Um, you see this, uh, you, as a consequence of this uh, classical treatment of gravity, you add a non-linear uh, term to the Schrodinger equation. This is a non-local, non-linear term added to the Schrodinger equation. The meaning is sort of a self-gravitation of the wave packet. Okay? And what, what that results in is if your wave function wants to, wants to spread, because of this gravitation self-interaction, um, you get a confinement and you, you end up in some, in some uh, solitonic uh, states. Okay? So this, every nonlinearity does that normally. So this gross Pitayevsky that you have also creates soliton in an in interacting many-body quantum system. Um, but the question is now, could you test that? Could you test for um, solitonic uh, behavior of the, of the wave function? Let's put in numbers. So if you take, for example, a mass of 10 to the 10 atomic mass units and a ground state wave function of like 500 nanometers. So these are typically numbers that you get in these uh, macromolecule meta-wave interference experiments. Then the collapse time, which is essentially the time it takes for the wave packet to disperse and due to gravitational uh, uh, self-interaction slow down and stop, right? or then come back and oscillate a little bit, uh, is on the order of 30,000 seconds. Well, so you can say either, well, that's a space experiment, right? Or you can say, forget it. So it's, um, either, either way, it's difficult. Um, but if you just slightly change the mass by a couple of orders of magnitude, like 10 to the 12 atomic mass units, and take instead of 500 nanometers a ground state extension of 500 femtometers, then suddenly this collapse time reduces to a, to a few microseconds, okay? Well, if you think about it, turns out if you take a sphere of, let's say, 400 nanometer radius, and you trap it in an optical magnetic potential at a frequency of a megahertz, um, 500 femtometer is exactly the, the spread of the wave function that you get. Okay? So here you have another motivation, having the, these, these trapped spheres in a ground state. Um, here could be a chance, but just by looking at the free dispersion, so forget about the double slit that I, that I proposed before, just the free evolution of the wave function of such a massive particle could um, give you some bounds on these nonlinearities of the, of the Schrodinger-Newton. Equation. Yeah, I find that quite interesting. Um, then there's some other stuff we did. I don't have time. Um, ask me if you want to know about it. Um, we we, we um, proposed some possible experiment to test um, uh, uh, quantum gravity. I don't talk about that. I just show you an ultimate experiment, uh, a possible one, entanglement by gravity. Maybe we can do that. That's actually an experiment that has been put forward by Feynman in 57 at a, at a, at a gravity conference in Chapel Hill. So the idea is, uh, let's assume, so this is actually Feynman, um, let's assume um, we have some device, like Stern Gerlach, and some device that coherently interacts here, such that you put the ball in a superposition, this massive ball, in a superposition of up and down. Okay? And then you take a second ball and gravitationally couple to this ball. What happens is, due to the gravitational interaction, you start to create an entangled state. Okay? So what does Feynman say? Where he says many things, okay, but I, I, I don't bore you with the details. The point is, in the end, says, 
aside from that possibility, if you believe in quantum mechanics up to any level, then you have to believe in gravitational quantization in order to describe this experiment. This is, his, this is the point that he wants to drive home. The argument that he has is sort of in order to describe that, it, you have to involve the notion that the field, uh, the gravitational field, uh, um, uh, actually has to have an amplitude, a probability amplitude, for interacting with the ball up and interacting with the ball down. And that is a notion that you can only have in connection with a quantum theory of gravity, or with a quantum theory um, of, of, of such a field. Uh, there's a huge discussion about that, uh, how, how correct that is, but I think uh, it's a very nice, it, it could be a very nice implicit test of the possibility to quantize gravity. Uh, again, doing that would require, if you, if you put the number, take, put the numbers here, a few hundred nanometers of the sphere, um, again, you, you would need on the order of several seconds, tens of seconds, uh, to actually create an entangled state, which again would um, be compatible with such a possible space experiment I was talking about before. Okay, I come to an end. Um, I'm sorry I haven't talked at all about these many beautiful proposals for cold atoms in space. There's really, um, there's, a, there's a myriad of other possible experiments for space. Um, simply, well, there simply wasn't time. Uh, here's just one uh, nice uh, example. So here's a cold atom experiment. I mean, cold atom is even, more, is even much more difficult than, um, than, than, than photons, right? a photon source. Photon source is small to begin with. But cold atom experiment, I mean, this is huge. Okay, I mean, this is like two meter scale here, right? Um, but if you look what, what these guys, for example, uh, I pick here the, the, the Qantas collaboration um, that tried to put such a cold atom experiment in space. The, the whole laser system, which in old days really used up two optical tables, they managed now to put into this 30 by 30 centimeter size um, thing here. Right? It's just amazing. Um, and, then they, and then the whole trap, the, the, the mod and so on, they just put here, this is like four centimeters or so, right? Fiber couple, blah, blah. They couple that to the laser system, they put it into this thing and they let it fall from a drop tower and just do beautiful cold atom experiments uh, over nine seconds. So this is, um, these are amazing experiments and they also have the goal, of course, to fly eventually. Um, uh, Mark Kasevich uh, also is following up on putting uh, uh, atom interferometers in space and many, many um, others. So um, I would like to uh, actually uh, um, I would like actually sum up. So I just wanted to um, show you once more. So the, the everything I told you about now, all these ideas and uh, maybe what is the relation to possible space experiments are exactly the things that we are right now discussing in the in, in the Keck workshop um, uh, over over there. And uh, many of the questions that I have addressed today, we already discussed the last three days, and uh, many of the things that I left out are being discussed um, the whole week. So uh, I just wanted to point it out one more time. Um, this is really a, a simply fantastic opportunity. And again, um, what I want to emphasize is um, these, um, these, these developments towards um, uh, space, really I see them as enabling future technologies for new experiments on the foundations of quantum physics. This is what, what I'm really interested in, and I really think every step that we take in order to make such experiments go will help us to come up with new experiments um, and, and, and really gain, uh, in the long term, new insights um, in the, the, the nature of physics. And with this, I would like to conclude. I would like to thank all my many collaborators um, around the world who uh, really share their, their, their great wisdom with me and um, have the patience to, to discuss with me. 
And um, this is my group in Vienna. We have a couple of programs. Actually, I couldn't tell you at all about Lonize coatings that we do. We have actually a collaboration here with, um, the, with the LIGO guys to look uh, if these Lonize coatings could be helpful for, for LIGO. Um, we have this quantum gravity test that I didn't have time to talk about. Uh, the levitate resonators I told you about. There's a whole team. We're collaborating here with Markus Andre, Chao, Pete Schwab, with Astrium, and so on. And of course, there are the quantum information interfaces where we have um, a, a long-standing collaboration now with the Painter Group and with um, other theory groups um, from Europe. With this, I would like to thank you very much once again for having me and for your attention. Yeah, it's just the accent, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's substance. There's a lot of substance. So I'll be back. Questions. Let's have some questions. Okay. Come on, guys. Where's the, where's the food? Where's the food? <laughs> Anybody? Come on. Come on. There you go. What's your idea? I'm just wondering where I'm going. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, I guess you were all just waiting for that part, right? I, 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 I didn't put it in deliberately because, yeah. Okay, here's the idea. Um, so, the motivation is the following. The motivation is, um, if there exists a fundamental length scale, and actually, if you look into those theories of quantum gravity, many of those have to, or just do, assume um, a, a minimum length scale. This could be at the lower scale, the Planck length, but this could also be something like 10 to the something times the Planck length. If you believe that this is the case, then uh, you have uh, a problem with the Heisenberg uncertainty relation because um, you cannot um, reduce your minimum position uncertainty below the, the, this minimum length scale. In order to avoid this complication, there are several people um, out of the quantum gravity theory community who um, started to propose modifications to the Heisenberg uncertainty relation. Okay? Um, these are modifications that all, uh, the, the whole um, quantum theoretical framework is maintained fully, so which means you do find some transformation uh, under which um, in, in, in a new set of coordinates you have again the, 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 the regular Heisenberg uncertainty, but with the old coordinates um, you have this modification. Question is, can one test that? If it's really out there, can one test that? Well, obviously, you cannot test it by just directly trying to measure the uncertainty um, because the Planck length is on the order of um, 10 to the minus 35 meter, and our best position resolution is like 17 orders of magnitude away from that. So don't even think about it. So instead of measuring the dynamics of a system, can we do something else? And here's the idea. Um, the idea is, in quantum theory, um, we have the possibility of just having some operations that we can perform on a system. What if we are able to perform on a massive system this operation, which is a, a, a displacement um, uh, uh, in, 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 actually it's a displacement in x, so, so, so um, a displacement operator with p, with minus x, with minus p, and with x. So what if we could do that? And this is not a continuous thing, 
each of this can be just a very um, point-like interaction. Okay, so forget about dynamics. This is a very important point. Okay? So, so they just have four instantaneous interactions at different times. And um, these interactions here, these four displacements, they just add up to this overall interaction. And you just use your Baker, Campbell, Hausdorff relations, blah, 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 um, to, come, uh, to, to come to this, uh, uh, to this interaction. So it turns out, um, if you were able to, to have those four point-like interactions, neglecting all the dynamics, um, you end up in something that contains the, the commutator. Okay? Now, if you were to um, push your mechanical system by a pulse of light, and if you couple this mechanical system to cavity, you have this optomechanical situation again, and therefore each pulse um, has an optomechanical coupling. And it turns out that this allows you to actually realize exactly this, uh, this sort of displacements. And um, instead of now measuring the mechanical system, you measure the optical system after the operation. Okay? If, you, if you push it around, I mean, what this does is in phase space, it just, pu it just makes a closed loop. And if you do that with light, so you have an ancilla that pushes it around. Um, during um, the pushing around, the systems are entangled, the light and the mechanics. And after you have concluded the full turn, they are disentangled again. You can measure the light. And it turns out, if you just uh, calculate um, how the light is changed after the interaction with the mechanical system, that also the, that also the, that also the light, um, so just the, the mean value here of the, of the, of the, of the field, that also the light actually carries the commutator's information. So it simply means, because of the optomechanic interaction, you can imprint the commutator onto your light field. So just by measuring, uh, essentially, um, the phase rotation of your, of your light, you get a measure of the commutator. Okay? And then we asked, well, how precise can you actually measure that? So that was our question. So obviously, this is a complicated way of measuring I. Um, but, but, but the question is, how accurately can you measure that? And then it turns out, um, if you do the numbers, you can um, measure it to such an extent that if there were a modification to the commutator, this modification would result in an additional phase shift. And if you choose your numbers carefully enough, you should be able to resolve this additional phase shift. So this additional phase shift now depends on, where did we put that here? Uh, this additional phase shift, this depends now, depending on uh, um, now which modification you, you, you choose, depends on the mass of the system, depends on the finesse and so on, the photon number, right? Um, and we have chosen here parameters. We found a set of parameters that um, if we were able to do the experiment with this set of parameters, a null result, so not observing any additional phase shift, would uh, mean that we have um, provided uh, 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 an upper bound of this possible modifications on the order of the Planck length. Okay? That is the message. Now there are questions. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, very much. Um, so we assumed. Oh, sorry. Um, so the question was, how much does um, this whole this is this whole scheme depend on the initial state of the oscillator? Um, we have simply assumed 
um, uh, Gaussian state to start with, uh, let's say uh, actually a, a thermal state with an occupation of like 30 quantiles. Okay? And uh, we didn't try out any, any um, exotic states. So we, we tried to keep the um, requirements as simple as possible, just thermal state. And um, you need to cool it down a little bit because if your state is too hot, then you cannot guarantee that, um, that you end up in the same point any longer. So this is actually a very important requirement and you end up in, uh, close to the same point. This is, where, this is an important error margin. But it turns out 30 quantas are sufficient. So um, essentially, the question is: um, Is there a relation between the the, the, um, the the Planck length modifications and the possibility to observe super, uh, still superpositions of a, of a massive system? Um, actually, I think that, um, that, that that's, so. I don't know the answer. <laughs> um, but, First of all, I would say, um, since this is a framework of a quantum theory of gravity, um, there should not be any intrinsic decoherence mechanism for my superposition. Okay, this, this is what, I, this is what my, my, my suspicion would be. If it really works, then, um, yeah. But you should be, maybe you should, you should be able to collect an additional phase somehow, right? Because you, uh, you, you have a coordinate transformation and so on. So this is a, yeah, it's a good question. Why don't we do this? If anybody else wants to ask a question, then come on down. But before we go, uh, Barris has uh, has something for Marcus. Yay! All right. Need the mic. Step over. Yeah, I'll talk for a few seconds. So I, I recognize we've run a little bit over, so I'm not going to keep you too long. Um, but I first want to thank you all for coming. I, I hope you found this lecture as entertaining and, and enlightening uh, as I did. And I want to thank Marcus for taking both the time and, and the effort to actually put together this uh, very nice talk. Now, as he um, very implicitly pleaded uh, for help at the end of his talk, we've been holding him hostage at the Keck Institute for Space uh, Studies. <laughs> studies. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's about this location. I, 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 I practiced it ten times now. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we've been holding him hostage for, since the beginning of the week, and we plan to do so for the rest of the week. So um, Marcus really hasn't had the time to explore the beautiful Caltech campus and, and uh, look at its uh, very interesting architecture. And so in the true spirit of being scholarly, we decided we would give him a book which explains all about this architecture and let him uh, <laughs> peruse it in, in his own leisure time. And so um, it's my great pleasure to give Marcus this little gift from uh, us, from the Keck Institute, to, uh, to him. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>